Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. Thank you for listening to the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform, as well as share it with your colleagues. If you're looking for more content, check out or follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn and Facebook for some different types of content and check out robsreliability.com as well. If you're looking for a short daily audio tip, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Tip of the Day on your favorite podcast platform. As well, it's also available on Amazon Alexa as a flash briefing. So check that out. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, just send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. Blair has been implementing artificial intelligence projects for about two years now as a leader of digital transformation at Lakeside Process Controls. Check this one out. Hey guys, I'm here with Steve Doby and Blair Frazier at the SMRP conference. We're going to talk a little bit today about machine learning and artificial intelligence. How are you guys doing? I'm doing great, Robert. Thanks for having me. Steve? Doing good, Rob. Thanks for having me on again. Good, yeah. So earlier today, Blair did a presentation about implementing artificial intelligence and how you need to really involve people in doing that. Uh, Blair, do you want to kind of walk us through how does that work? That's a very broad statement, Robert. <laughs> well, so, uh, so, so yeah, we go back in time. And, and just for anyone listening, my background, I've been doing this for about a year and a half. So I'm going to say this, I mean, artificial intelligence. Um, and what I found was that in this kind of relates back to traditional condition-based technologies as well, is there's a specific way to do things. There's a lot of wrong ways to do things and a very few right ways to do things. And, and the right ways are always involving people in the process, right? But if I go back and looking at different um, technology eras and we're entering what's being called the Industry 4.0, is this technology era, in my opinion, has the biggest opportunity to leave people behind. So when we think of AI, artificial intelligence, uh, machine learning, a lot of people think of a black box approach, right? Which it can be if you don't specifically design it to have people in the loop during the whole process. And that's what I tried to touch upon was how do you get people, specifically people on the shop floor, to not only buy into the process, but put their domain expertise or subject matter expertise into the process to help that AI algorithm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's something that I've found just like trying to troubleshoot models is it's really easy for it to be a black box because it's hard to really separate what's going on. Right. Versus if you're just using an Excel model, like most of the time you know exactly what's going in and what's coming out. Exactly, yep. yep, that's it. Something I wanted to dig into what you said this morning was you said that most PDM technology is going to be obsolete. Ah, so I did say that, yes. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit. About, let's break <laughs> you want to go right to that one, do you? You don't want to I, blend I, in anything. So I've, I've, throughout my uh, um, last, last two years of going to conferences, many conferences, um, I've said a lot of interesting things. Some, some I regret, and some I don't. And this is this is one I don't regret. Um, 
And, and what we're seeing is, is you know, traditional condition monitoring. Um, so I should back up. Condition monitoring is always going to have a role, but I think it's going to have a role in uh, eliminating human error in things, specifically when it comes to, think of, you know, people typically think of like a motor and a pump or something like that, right? Around eliminating installation errors and things like that. Um, where I see machine learning, artificial intelligence takeover is even before there's a defect happening. So we look at condition monitoring, uh, specifically the most common with other doubt is vibration, is most people, or when you think about what happens in order for vibration, these sensors to pick it up, a defect has to happen. There has to be a defect in the bearing or an issue that's actually causing vibration. Where we're seeing technology like machine learning come in is identifying the leading indicators that lead to that condition happening before it even happens to start what we call in the reliability world a functional failure, right? Before it even onset of a failure. So when we're using this technology to diagnose it, and I have a vision, I think it's going to come true, is we're going to get a project one day that's strictly vibration-based or vibration-based outcome where we walk into a shop of a, um, say, of an end user and they have a vibration or a condition monitoring shop. We walk in there and say, hey, guys, in two weeks, you're going to start to see vibration." Right, and I think that's the goal of what we're trying to see, right? And and we've always called it predictive maintenance. And yeah. the truth is, there was nothing predictive about it. No one had a crystal ball. I'm not saying that machine learning AI is going to give you this crystal ball, but it's definitely going to get us there a lot quicker uh, and a lot more what we call data driven CBM or data driven maintenance. Right? There's data behind it. What, what typically we did, and, and I used to run a team of, uh, of guys that went out there and did condition monitoring. And that was a common question we got was, hey, that's great. You picked up this issue. It's at this much inches per second. How long do I got? Yep. Right? And, and we just can't answer. I'm sure you get that from no, the No, most people don't know, right? Right? You don't know unless you've had that failure before. And what I don't know is how they're going to operate that equipment. Yep. Well, it depends what you do to it. If you've been running like it is, it can last too long, right? But if, and, and with data, we can say, hey, listen, but if you run it you know, at 10% less frequency or run it with less pressure, we see an indication that data is telling us that, you know, it's happier in that spot. So you might get more life out of it if you do this, or your, 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 your influencing factor to cause that vibration to go out of whack is this. So we recommend limiting that, right? And that, yeah. I think, is where you're going to see it. So the CBM technology will always have a place, but I think we're going to see less and less of it from a true overall asset health. And we're going to rely more on the process parameters, such as, I think, one of the most underused and soon-to-be-used um, measurement is current. Yeah. Right. We look at electrical equipment. Um, there's some great people here at this conference that do wonderful things with motor current signature analysis and things like that. The current draw on specifically motors are amazing insights. Mm -hmm. just the issue is that um, you know, the data is so variable, and to understand that data uh, takes a lot of subject matter expertise. I think a vibration, even a basic vibration analysis, can go back to ISO standards. Say, is this bearing? It should be this. Right. Yeah. We don't have that with the state of analytics, but um, with this type of machine learning, we can just go out there and baseline what is normal and then start comparing when it starts to drift. We don't necessarily have to have a standard to begin with. Yeah. So that leads me, which I can't remember if I talked about it or not this morning, was when we talk about these type of sensors, um, in my opinion, we no longer care so much about accuracy. We care more about repeatability. Yeah. So all of a sudden, you know, our axis of measurement goes away. Yep. Right. I'm just looking to make sure that you know I did a, I did a project where we used ultrasound right to detect uh, um, diaphragm seal failures on, on small little dinky valves. Right. I didn't care about the quantitative measurement. What I cared about was when I started and when the failure started to happen. What did that change to? Right. 
looking at the net difference, not, not yep. the actual accuracy. So that's another thing I think is going to happen is we're going to get more concerned about um, repeatability. And that also goes to what's happening in our industry. And a lot of customers I'm seeing are going out there saying, hey, Blair, I bought these sensors off Amazon. I want to install them in my process, right? And we'll see ultrasound <laughs> sensors and things like that that really, you know, they're meant for a car backup sensor and stuff like that. They're not industrialized, right? Um, they're great sensors probably, right, for to do the home hobbyist with a, a Raspberry Pi or something like that. Um, but what's going to happen is they're going to great measurements, but then quickly the environment we live in, you know, you go to the oil sands and all these mines, right, that nothing lasts long, right, is, is they're quickly not going to be a repeatable device and start giving false hope. So. Mm-hmm. What, what I see on my end is people just don't understand what machine learning is at this point. Mm-hmm. So, like, they don't understand kind of how it works and what it's good at. Yep. They just kind of either they're hoping they say, like, oh, we have lots of data. Let's let's throw something at it and see what it gives us. Yep. Or on the opposite end, they're, they're telling you things that are really you could have done in 1990 with just a rules-based engine. Right. Yep. And how do you kind of see your customers? Like- no, so, yeah, and, and a lot of customers, and specifically I come from the automation side, so a lot of customers are very familiar with creating the rules, yeah. right? A rule-based engine, and, and we've seen that. And, and there's a lot of great customers that are doing things. And, and one of the projects um, we worked on was um, agitator failures, right? Mm-hmm. And, and what happens is with agitator failures, I'm not talking about the gearbox failure, I'm, I'm talking specifically about the shaft and the blades, okay. right? If you look at how those fail, um, specifically in this type of process, was the scale builds up on those blades very evenly. Um, so because it builds up evenly, there's no vibration, yeah. right? Until eventually it just busts the blade off. But what did happen, you think if that scale builds up, it takes more oomph to move, and then obviously your current draw is going to go up, right? Yeah. But subsequently, if your seal breaks, it doesn't have the resistance, and your current goes down. So there's a lot of things you can look at. As I mentioned, just for current, that's a great example. Um, but... If you go back in time, you know, companies have invested a lot of time to create rules on that. So they figured that, oh, yes, current is a good indication of essentially a blade health. Who would have thought, right? Blade health is, is I can measure the health of my blades on my agitator by measuring the current of the motor through the gearbox, right? Unbelievable. So what they had to do was, okay, based on this condition, I know if my tank level is this, because obviously if there's more gunk in the tank, it's going to be harder to spin the blades, right? So you have to create rules based on if my tank level is this and, and uh you know, if everything else is in this ideal situation, my current is X, yeah. right? That's one point in time based on all these operating conditions, right? You start to think about what could affect that current, right? So you, what you end up doing is creating a number of rules, right? And it's, it's, it's openly endless, right? When I did a project about ultrasound, <laughs> we found it was a factorial of 32 different rules I have to create to get yeah. every different operating condition. Yeah. A factorial 32, right? The number is yeah. just like Trump's net worth, I think, right? What he lies it to be, right? That's political. <laughs> we should have about it. Um, so... Um, so, you know, it's infinite on how many rules you can create. And what machine learning essentially does is, instead, we have always been taught, especially in the automation world, is we need to create a program. That program is a set of rules saying, if this, then, then, then this. What machine learning is doing is it's creating that program for us. It is the program, mm-hmm. right? It's giving us an output now, right? So it's learning all the relationships in that data to create, essentially create those rules. Now, it's not hard coding those rules, but it's creating those rules, right? Yep. So the way I say it is it can learn with the data you give it to train on what that relationships of all the, the tank level and the current and, and your oil and all that kind of stuff in the gearbox has a relationship to that current value. And essentially what we can do is learn what's normal, 
hey, yeah. this is normal across all my operating, right? And, and it wouldn't in this example case, but we, we've done air handling units, right? Where normal in winter is completely different than normal in summer, yeah. right? So you need to be aware of that type of stuff, right? And, and, and just like we create rules, we need to think of those. But the great part is we don't need to create those rules individually. Machine learning is going to do that for us, right? Now, that's machine learning. We can get into AI and some complex deep learning and all that kind of stuff, which is, you know, and I think when people think about it, you can get confused as going down that road of, of you know, even going neural nets and deep learning and all this kind of stuff, right? Is that that's that's a different thing. Like image recognition and stuff like that, right? We're seeing a lot of use cases, but that truly is deep learning, for example, right? Yep. And, and uh, you know, I don't think people are going to start off doing deep learning no. um, from, a, from an engineering point of view. Yeah, so like one of your core thesis is needing subject matter expertise in order to get useful information out of machine learning or AI, right? right. And I'm sure you've seen the graph. There's like this website where the, all they do is look at, I think it's called spurious correlations. Yep, yep. And it's like, the, the stock market, the S&P, is, is super correlated with coffee production in Brazil. <laughs> so how do you kind of, yeah. is that how you're really breaking down? Is yeah, correlation and causation are two different things. Exactly. And, and I think people need to be aware of that, right? And um, so a, a few examples, and I talked about one this morning, right, about how we built the model and then we had subject matter expertise come in about the features we used. And subsequently, that model got a lot better because we didn't include them, they weren't included in our data set. Right, so it really is more on the point of artificial intelligence or machine learning. It really is augmented intelligence at this point. Yep. There is no singularity. It's not thinking like us. It can't adapt like us. Um, it really needs that subject matter expertise. And, and um, I forget where I was going to go, but so when you give these case examples, it's been proven time and time again that um, first of all, the humans needed to design or. or Put the thought behind what question you want to solve, and that's where I talked about today. That is the first place, and where first place where you need to start. You need yeah. to define a question. Unless you don't have a question defined, AI is not going to be answer it, right? And the question has to be well defined. It can't just be, you know, find me a happy place or something like that, <laughs> right? Like, um, you know, you need to get really defined on what your what question you want it to solve, right? Yeah. Um, and that, in my opinion, it, it can be done with the help of a consultant or a data scientist, right? And using the data. Um, but that's where I recommend first people start is by getting the subject matter, subject matter expertise in a room and asking them what problem do you want to solve. Like really narrow it down, right? Yeah. Not just you, know, you need to you need to think of the things of a system level, but you need to get down to the nitty gritty of what problem you want to solve. AI is solving one problem at a time, yeah. right? And then putting all those together to solve a larger problem. Yeah, I mean, I I agree 100. percent Is the, the one thing I see as kind of gaps in the market right now is there's the data scientist people on one side and then there's the shop floor people on the other side and there's not a lot of people that connect the two. Right. And like people like you, um, I'll even throw myself in there yeah, as absolutely. well is because we spend time kind of on both ends of the spectrum. Yep. And I think that that bridge is where we really need to work as maintenance people to see all that benefit that's there. That's right. And I'm actually seeing, because more and more people are starting to reach out to me saying, first of all, like, how did you get in this, into the AI? And yeah. the truth is I fell ass, butt backwards <laughs> <laughs> into it um, because uh, of, a, of a customer we're trying to solve a specific problem. 
and I went at it with a rule-based problem. Yep. I went out to solving with traditional automation and a rule-based, and that's how it got me almost two years ago now um, down the AI path, right? But what I'm seeing is more and more engineers going to Coursera and all those courses and taking them online, yep. right, and educating themselves on it to the point where they're well more educated than I am on the theory behind it. Mm-hmm. I just have an advantage of I've actually applied this stuff, right? <laughs> um, but they're, they're dying to get it. So more and more people, and some of the most powerful people, and I think, that are going to have the brightest future in this technology are, for example, we've seen now, we've seen a lot of, um, you know, PhDs and masters create these wonderful papers right in the lab, right? And they do it for their their, their thesis or their masters, you know, around vibration monitoring, but it never leaves that academia, yep. right? But now what's happening is those strange people that, you know, do their masters or PhDs in, in, in mechanicals and all that kind of stuff are also becoming data scientists. And uh, I work with a company... As, as a customer now that actually hired one of these type of people where fundamentally they were a you know a very high level vibration analysis at like you know at the functional level not that right and then went back and got his data science degree right mm-hmm. and that's a very very powerful combination because he Absolutely. understands the whole theory of it plus the whole data science guy so he's like me and you as, as the gap but all in one <laughs> so he's got a, he's got a pretty good future ahead of him that's right yeah. make all the money that's right what does a typical implementation for an AI project look like in your experience? So, yeah, very good question. So, it always, in my in my opinion, it always starts with, um, I used to call it a proof of concept, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I stopped even using that acronym because the concept's proven, right? AI is proven. In my mind, I have a number of case studies where I say, Absolutely. It, it works, right? So, I called it proof of value, right? A POV instead of a POC. Because I want to take it from what's pie in the sky and actually say, yes, this is everyone. A lot of people are doing it. Right. And if you look at outside our industry, yeah. right, you look at the healthcare and stuff like that, it's just amazing of what they're doing in terms of cancer detection and all this kind of stuff. Right. Um, FinTech, financial tech is another Absolutely. one that's just, just killing it. Right. The stock market thing example you gave. So it, in my opinion, it always starts with a proof of value and some of the misconceptions are in order to do this, you know, and then you start streaming data and real time data and connecting my IT and OT systems together. And I got to get the cloud involved and all this kind of <laughs> stuff, right? Um, for most proof of value start with offline data and most of our, actually I shouldn't say most, all of them have started with CSV files, yep. right? And most people can, can shouldn't say easily because it ends up in these proof of values, which you know, if you have a good proof of value with a good good problem to solve, you can get proof within, you know, I'd say two to four weeks. Yeah. Right? It, it's not as painstaking process. The the resource requirement is not on our end or the data science end. It's on the customer's end to get that data. Yeah. Right? And I talked about this a bit. Um, not all data is created equally. Right? <laughs> if you think, for example, you put it in a CSV and then you put it into an Excel, right? You, you can see the infamous hashtags and okay, this must be a time date stamp and all that kind of stuff right so there's a bunch of cleansing you have to do absolutely which is you know if you look at paying a data scientist their average rate which is very high right or you or you are having someone in your staff cleansing that data first right and it makes sense that so um the first step to implementing an ai project is always a proof of value where you use offline data you train a model you essentially prove that yes i can pick up this prediction i can predict this value or I can detect when you had an anomalous situation. The ideal situation is you have what's called label data, which is in your historical data, you have labels of when things were not normal, right? Yeah. They could be their failures or, or upset process conditions and stuff like that, right? And what essentially you're doing is you're finding that unique but subtle pattern in the data that led to that in predicting in the future. 
future, right? So they always start with a proof of value. Um, some customers are saying, screw it, that's just a waste of resources now, my time is proven and, and my competition XYZ just did it, so let's just skip that phase and go right to online. Which yeah. I'm on board, let's do it. Um, <laughs> So then the next phase, because what you end up doing in that proof of value is you are creating models, right? So you've selected the algorithm, you've trained it, it becomes a model, right? You haven't deployed it, it's not streaming real-time data. And what I found was, and I think you've probably come across this, selecting an algorithm, training a model, developing a model is one step. Deploying it on real-time data is a completely different step, which I would say from a skills and expertise point of view can be harder than the actual model development itself to figure out yeah. how you deploy a model, how you run it, how you stream it, uh, how you optimize it, how you how you give it reinforcement learning, yep. right? Is a completely different ballgame, right? So phase two is looking at that, looking at how do we connect data, right? Because at the end of the day, no one's going to want, and the advantage of, of this is you do it with, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be real-time, I'll use near, near real-time data, right? Because if you look at going through historian and things like that, you can have lag, which I think is fine, depending on what type of failure or prediction you're looking at. So phase two is looking at uh, you know, deployment of a, what I call an end-to-end platform. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and the thing about an end-to-end platform is there's AI solutions out there. Um, but just be aware that sometimes there's just an AI solution where, hey, you can build a model. Okay, I want to deploy it. All right, what do I do now? Yeah. Right, I got to figure out the whole infrastructure and how to deploy it, right? So an end-to-end platform is looking at how do I ingest data, how do I give it context, all the way over to how do I deploy it and, and maintain it, retrain it, and all that kind of stuff, right? So phase two is typically um, getting that infrastructure in place to build that data pipeline, to connect those ITOT systems, and typically what we do is the models, the models we had built in the initial proof of value, they're already built, we just start deploying them. Mm-hmm. Right, and that's when you start getting that. Oh, yeah, this, this is actually working, right? And then from there, you got to look at scalability, which in my mind goes into phase three, which is actually looking at you know other opportunities to use this technology now that you have contextual data in one place, and and having contextual data and having data available for machine learning AI are two different things. You need to have a certain um, certain way of having that data in place to actually be machine learning, right? Yeah. Um, so. Phase three is looking at the rest of the project. Say if you were going to do 50 models, for example, typically we'll do a proof of value around four or five models offline. Phase two is we're deploying those models in real time, we're streaming data, making sure everything's working there, right? Get those results, those little hanging fruit. And then phase three is we're looking at, um, you know, deploying the rest of those models, right? If it was 50, the rest of the 46, right? Um, what, what people don't understand is this isn't a year, a year and a half, right? Now it depends on if you have data. Right, data is the gold, right? And and I'll, I'll get to that. So that whole process, we've done it now. And, and our, you know, if you go back to when we first started this, our learning curve was quite long, right? But we've done this where we've done projects end to end, you know, in, in three, four months. Okay. Right? So the time scale isn't that big, right? right? But my caution to everyone that's listening to this, and I hope a lot do, is don't think at the end of the four months you have this perfect model that's just solving all your problems, right? Absolutely. It, it's it's uh, the way I put it this morning was it is a it's an apprentice. You're the journeyman. You need to teach it. You need to give it feedback. Sometimes it's positive feedback, and sometimes it's negative feedback, right? So it needs to learn along with you, right? And someone asked me, "What's the life of a model?" Right? The life of a model is going to depend on what you change, right? If you Absolutely. change the process, you change the sensor. You need to retrain a model. So don't think you just put a model in there and it's good for the rest of its life, right? And if you go back to um, expert systems, right? I'm not sure from, from where you came from, but in the automation world, we've de- we dealt with model predictive control and these expert systems that would, you know, 
uh, change set points for you where operators wouldn't have to and things like that just to get an extra ounce of gold out the end, right? And the problem, yeah. and these were great systems and people spent a lot of effort into them, but the problem was it was very hard to maintain those as soon as you change something, right? And the whole manufacturing now is meant to be agile, right? As soon as you change one thing, that expert system went out the window, right? So we need to be aware of that, that, you know, we've had things where just a sensor range, they put a new sensor in and had a different range, yep. right? You need to link out how you retrain that model, right? And things like that. So it, it's, in my mind, it's, it's those three phases and the fourth phase is an ongoing for the rest of the plant life or the rest of that model life is that ongoing. Yeah, I mean, that's where I've seen a lot of uh, problems, I guess, is once you sort of, so like we're, we're, what we've done, like I trained the models, built them, uh, we're kind of in that sort of proof of value stage. Yep. Um, now, they're not really deployed in a sense that we have a data pipeline and it's working. It's, right. it's a very manual process. Yep. Yep. Um, and there is no real concept of, well, how do we feed back into it? Like, of right. course, we're feeding back, but in, in terms of a live sense, that was something that people haven't thought about. Yeah. And, and it's something that's super important because unless your data set has every single failure mode that your equipment's going to see, it's doesn't know everything yet. It doesn't know yet. You haven't taught it, right? You exactly. need to teach it. And that, that's one of the issues and one of the biggest stumbling blocks when you look at this is, you know, I mentioned I mentioned that failure data or that label data, right? Yep. That is the holy grail. But it came up today, right? How do you get information out of your CMMS? And, and very few customers have a, uh, you know, we spent a lot of money on CMS or an ERP system, yep. right? But um, <laughs> data in there is, is questionable, right? Say, yeah, I have, I have failure data, but, you know, chances are, the technician just picked. If there was another failure code, they picked up, right, and stuff like that. So getting that contextual data is a challenge. So what do you do? So what do you do if you say, okay, I don't have, I don't have historical data. Well, I have historical data, but I don't have failures, right? You can start to use AI. You can actually use AI in a lot of places, even from your data streaming pipeline. But you know, you can start to use AI. This list looks looks normal, and this looks abnormal, right? We can't link it back to a specific failure. But chances are, and I'll use that current, for example, of the agitator, right? What I just told you, and it sounded like you were, looked like you were nodding when I said, you know, scale builds up, obviously, and take more room yep. to move, and, and current, right? So you fundamentally know, as a subject matter expert, or, or with some domain knowledge, what that failure looks like. So what if you could, in that data, when you're building a model, say, in, in, use AI to generate a failure signature, yep. right? And, and that's what... Um, some companies are doing is generating that so you can say hey i don't have the, this failure data that's a holy grail um but i do have a lot of domain expertise and i know this equipment and i know what it looks like when it fails give me the option of saying yes this looks like what i would see for failure and train the model for that yeah right so you don't specifically need it in the data you can generate big data is it as good as a real thing of course not but at least it gets you started moving forward something i wanted actually you brought up this morning when you were talking about that i thought and i've been thinking about it for a while was has, have you seen anyone use natural language processing yeah, yeah. to analyze CMMS yeah. to kind of try to extract failure modes and defect codes out of the data? Yes, yes. Um, so here's a great example. So if you would look, take a look at a CMMS, right, and I've, I've said this, is the most valuable information, if, if you have a good technician or, or and assuming you don't have a, you know, a great system in place, is 
typically it's in the comment section. Yeah. Right? I said, well, actually, the, the, the first wealth of knowledge is in those technicians' head, right? Very difficult to get it out. The second is in most technicians, especially the old school people, carry around notepads, yep. right? In their shirt pockets. You ever seen those guys, right? Yep. With the pen, <laughs> right? And they both flip back in years of history and say, oh, yeah, I turned this screw three times to the right last time, right? Does that get transferred into the CMS system? Probably not. No. Right? There's no field. Some of them do. And what I, what I found when we did this one project was a lot of information was in the comment section, right? Right? Um, where they can freeform, they can put yep. whatever they want in, right? Sometimes they're just justifying their time. I spent eight hours because this damn thing was broken, right? But if you even look at an example, and this would be right up your alley, was um, we start to look at failure codes. So this company didn't have failure codes. In that other section was um, you know, insufficient grease, right? Now, that's not a failure code. So if I was to extract, extract years worth of data in these comments, uh, you know, I could filter out, okay, search for insufficient grease. Yep. But... You could have put insufficient grease. When I go and type it in, I could say, not enough grease. They mean exactly the same thing. Yep. Right? Um, they mean the exact same thing, different ways of saying it. And that's what NLP is, right? And if you look at Alexia or Siri, right, you can ask it the same things in different ways. Absolutely. Stop playing or shut up, right? In the same way. And I have Google Home, big fan of Google, right? It'll stop playing. The music, Absolutely. right? Yep. Hey, Google, shut up. Right? Or please stop playing, right? Which I'm trying to be polite to it. And I recommend anyone of AI be polite to it. Um, <laughs> um, is that same thing, right? So that's where natural language processing comes in, right? It's not mainstream as like machine learning is now, but I think we'll start to see more and more of that. Um, and one of the biggest things and what got me on AI is, um, is technology, right? I just love technology. I love seeing where it's going, right? And the best part of what technology is we don't know what's happening tomorrow. Right, and the analogy is, you know, when, when we when we as in humans built the wheel, right? We fundamentally changed everything. That we built stuff exponentially because we had the wheel, right? We use the wheel as the base, then we can build all this other stuff, right? I think we're at another pivotal point in time where we just built another wheel, but it's artificial intelligence, right? Absolutely. And you look at companies that are doing augmented reality, right? Which is unbelievable, and that's actually catching up now in terms of deployment. But there's a company that. I'm, I'm, I'm working with that's doing augmented reality that where you just speak into it. You know, no longer have notes or service notes, right? You just talk into it with your microphone, right? And say, oh, yeah, I found this. Oh, write this serial number down, schedule another work order. I just didn't have enough grease, right? And it's processing all that and putting it in to your CMS for you, right? Yeah. So that's actually getting ahead. But there is a historical issue of using that. And, and um, to answer your question, NLP, yes, I've seen it done very tedious in order to train all those models and stuff, right? Yep, but absolutely. You, but you've seen it, right? The world is going open source, right? And by that, I mean the code for um, all this NLP. Um, you know, you can go on GitHub, which um, Microsoft just bought for $7.5 billion, <laughs> right? Um, I put in $7 billion, but they wouldn't take it, so I guess they went to Microsoft, um, right? All these, all these open source community. And in this last two years, I didn't realize what open source was. Right? And, and like there, there's a driver, for example, to connect a, um, an Allen Bradley driver and convert yep. it into, like, it's just, it's there. Like, Joe Smo built it. Hey, you want to use this? Give me credits in your, in your credits of your software, right? And what's interesting was if you make it better, put it back to the community. Absolutely. Right? But go ahead and use it, right? Um, between, you know, AI, NLP, augmented reality, those are technologies. But what's happening on the back, back end is you're looking at open source technology. You're looking at crowdsourcing. Yeah. Crowdsourcing is such an underused technology that 
if we figure out an industry, and maybe I'm giving my trade secrets away here, <laughs> we figure out how to use crowdsourcing, right? Um, to better our manufacturing industry, it's, it's going to change our game. Yeah, there's a lot to, like when you said we're coming into a new age, It's I, I see it too, is, I mean, you look at what's next. I mean, it's like the Alexa, the Google Home, that's going to be in your house, and everything's going to talk to each other. Yep. And it's just, like even now, we all carry cell phones. That's changed the game since when I was in high school. Yep. Um, but, but here's the comment on, on cell phones, is when you look at, cell phones so we all have cell phones that's great right and what people think and if you go to some plants and i'm sure you've been to them in the remote areas of canada right you go to them and, and some of them have been lagging right so you look at you know what we're talking about now is industry 4.0 yep. right some places miss the boat on industry 3.0 yep like, oh damn that went by right like i still have chart recorders right versus automating things and stuff like that right so they're, they're saying well blair i'm a you know industry 2.9 and I haven't quite hit 3.0 how do I, I can't go to 4.0 until I hit 3.0 right and that's not true if you look at technology adoption it's not linear right so you look at the way we do cell phones and we listen to music now right our kids are listening through iPads iPhones and stuff like that they didn't have a Walkman yep right they didn't have a CD player that you know you had to use buffering if you start to run it the would boom skip box, the, the boom, boom box. box right they didn't have that but did did, in order for those kids that, that, I don't know what generation they are, in order to use that technology, did they have to go through the boom box? Did they have to go through the Walkman, <laughs> right? Did they have to go flip their cassettes over? No. They went right to that, and they're reaping the benefits of it. A great example is in India, for example. India was struggling because most of the population didn't have access to Internet because there wasn't phone lines. They didn't have the physical infrastructure. Yep. Cell phones came in. We built a software tower. We can broadcast a signal. Now it connected a lot of the world, right, or a lot of India. They missed the phone lines. They missed the AOL, the dial-up. Right? They missed all that. But that's fine. Because now they're killing it. Some yeah. of the best software engineers and developers are coming from these. Some of the best platforms are being developed there, right? But they missed that whole step. But that's fine, right? So why do companies think they need to stop in the middle and catch up to what was yesterday and not just go right to today? Well, I mean, if they don't if they don't go up to today, they're going to be out of business. Like, Agreed. let's be honest, right? Yep. Like, this is... Like AI, and then obviously the next steps. This is the opportunity, and if you're not part of the opportunity, it's going to be game over. And and like a big example, right? Like everyone talks about, you know, like these big companies like Amazon. If you look at Amazon ten years ago, what was their revenue like? Yep. And now they're a hundred billion dollars. Yep. So, Eastman Kodak they invented the di- digital camera, and now they're out of business because they didn't adopt it. Yep. And this is one just another turning point. Yeah, I think every company should have, um, you know, what's called a CIO or a CTO, or chief technical officer, someone that's just dedicated to forward-looking thinking, right? And and what I found, don't put that person in a leadership role, the day-to-day stuff. Yeah, I, I'm a great example of that. If you put me in the day-to-day stuff, I'm going to ruin your business, right? Because I'm going to spend it all and bet everything on black, right? I'm going to go on this technology, right? I'd be a bad person with day-to-day stuff. What I'm really good at is looking at the visioning, looking at the ecosystem, right? Yep. And, and doing that, right? So I think every company should invest um, in having that type of person that's think, thinking about, if we don't do this, then we're going to be this, right? And this is the technology to do it. And that one word, ecosystem, and that's what I found because there's no one vendor. There used to be some big players in our industry, right? Um, that used to lead the way, 
right? You can go to one stop. I can get everything from this one vendor, right? An Emerson, a GE, or whatever it is, right? The game's changed, right? Now it's an ecosystem. Yes, you have the big players. Yes, you have the medium players. But what we're seeing is a convergence of all these startups, right? That are agile enough, nimble enough, and risky enough to bet on these technologies and eventually crack it, right? Yeah. Um, and, and I think the successful companies or even integrators that operate in the middle that build the successful ecosystem of partners because that's what's going to drive it forward. No longer can a company just say, hey, I've partnered with this one company to do my digital transformation. No, you partner with that company to do one part of it, right? You can't, no one can digitalize a whole process yeah. with just one company. It doesn't exist today, unless I haven't heard this company. But No, I, you remind me of a, of a talk I was listening to and, and the guy, his thought exercise was, if by the end of this year, you as an operator, um, you could guarantee one million, like a hundred percent chance of get, of adding one million in revenue to your company, or would you rather have a one percent chance of adding a billion dollars to your company? Which one would you pick? Right. And obviously, if you look at expected value, the billion dollars comes out. It's like ten million dollar in expected value, right? Right. And so, what his the- thesis was is. Yeah, like 90% of your company should be working on the things that will add that incremental value that gets you that $1 million extra. But you should have a portion of your staff and your budget just shooting for home runs. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. No, and, 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 and uh, uh, if you hear to Google X, yep. right? Yep. And they're whole. I they're, think he was the CEO of oh, Google okay. X. So. <laughs> okay. So yeah. what was interesting about Google X is, is they actually celebrate failure. Yep. Right, that's how they do milestones. That's how they do um, reward themselves. Right? Hey, we figured out this don't work. Yeah. Right? Don't do this again. Right? <laughs> and that's the only way. Right? Can you imagine we get into these large organizations? Right? And, and to your point, don't put everyone in charge of failing because you will fail. Yeah. Right? I'm getting really good at failing. Right? But you have that very few that said, Hey, you know, it's a great idea, but we failed. But this is what came out of it. Now we're doing this. Right? It's all about being agile and, and pivoting. Right? Mm-hmm. So if everyone was to form a little bit of that Google X in their own organization, right? And I think the, the stats I said I read is like out of like 200,000 employees, 20 meets that profile of what we call not an entrepreneur, but an intrapreneur. Yeah. Right? About 20 meet that profile, right? It's a very unique profile. Um, you know, empower them to start doing this experimentation. So, what would be so define entrepreneur for people who haven't heard it? Entrepreneur is, and, and um, so I always thought it was an entrepreneur until I started, as I mentioned, going to Silicon Valley and stuff like that. And then realizing. Entrepreneurship is different than entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is when you're you're essentially being an entrepreneur, but you're inside a larger organization, yep. right? So you don't have that, you know, you always have that day-to-day business to support you to get you going and stuff like that, right? Where an entrepreneur and, and you know, you've met a few, right? They live and breathe it, right? That is their sole purpose. They really don't have a day-to-day business on the side. They're yep. investing everything on this one thing. They might have multiple product lines, right? Um, but you can definitely see a difference between an entrepreneur and an entrepreneur. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a risk thing. A lot of the times it's also an equity. Yep, exactly. Right? Yep, yep. So I guess let's, let's kind of wrap up with one thing, and that's if you had a tip for people who are listening and they're looking at artificial intelligence or machine learning in their, yep. in their company, how do they get started? So they get to start by defining the business problem, but I think it's better to talk about what you don't do. Yep. So my recommendation is... is don't go out there and just start adding sensors, yep. right? Um, sensors good, data is good, um, um, but just don't go out there and start arbitrarily buying sensors or even s- sensors with a solution, 
right? Because make sure you've identified the problem. If you're looking at doing vibration monitoring, yes, you know, an example I think we talked about today was an air handler, right? Yes, you can do vibration monitoring on an air handler, but you're going to only monitor the failure modes of that motor or the bearing or the fan, right? There's yep. a bunch of other stuff around there, around the cooling coils and uh, humidifiers and all that other stuff you're not going to measure, right? So if you think you're doing true HVAC monitoring, you're not because you're missing all the other failure modes. Absolutely. Right? So by looking at that and defining the problem, and the problem may be I want to know my overall health of my entire HVAC, then that's a different solution, right? You might say, you know what, I, my valves already have some repositioners on them. I can get feedback on them, right? Um, a great example is when you look at a Fitbit, right? And I'm assuming... Uh, Apple Watch is the same thing. A Fitbit essentially is a heart rate monitor, yep. right? And it does wonderful things in terms of your max heart rate and all that kind of stuff. Where a lot of people are buying it is, I want to understand my sleep patterns, right? How does it measure your sleep patterns? Still the same sensor. It's yep. still the same heart rate sensor. So fundamentally, they have a heart rate sensor to tell you when you're exercising, if you're in an optimal zone. But they deferred other very important insights from that one measurement, right? So why can't we do start doing the same with our process equipment? I have pressure. Yes, it's meant to control the pressure in this vessel, but it can also tell me a lot if my seal's leaking and there's other things, right? If it's taking longer, right? So that same analogy can apply because a lot of the times what I found is to solve the problem that the customer wants, they're 90 to 100% there in terms of the sensing requirements, yeah. Yeah. right? And that's as a result of Industry 3.0. We, yeah. we instrumented the heck out of stuff, right? So, you know, start with the problem. Don't necessarily... Um, don't necessarily add sensors unless you've quantified that you need them. And don't be scared around security because, you know, just doing a proof of value doesn't mean you need to send data to the cloud. Actually, the entire solution doesn't have to be the cloud. I think yep. I was talking about this earlier today. Yep. I'm a big component of the cloud. I think um, the cloud has a purpose and, and we should embrace the cloud. Um, but if you want, solutions like AI can be done in the walls of your facility as well, right? So, you know, you need to think about the security engage your IT department or IS, whatever you want to call it, early. Mm -hmm. um, typically, what I found is better once you've done a proof of value and you get the executive sponsorship because they'll help drive it. N not around <laughs> IS or IT, right, but with their guidance because if something's valuable enough, obviously, we've got to do it, right? And I think what I'm finding is when it comes to AI and machine learning, it's actually the IT department that's actually leading a lot of these initiatives. It's actually coming from them and going down to the maintenance and reliability guys saying, hey, you guys should start doing something if we have our infrastructure ready, right? So don't be afraid of, of security. You just address it head on and, and, and tackle it. Yeah, I think, um, no, I think you're right. I also think that, you know, what you were mentioning about not adding sensors, it kind of brings us back to first principles or what I'll call first principles of reliability, which is like back to your RCM. Yep. Is like if you define failure modes, and you define how those things fail, then really you know what data points you need, and That's then exactly you it. know yep. so if every, you have it yep. or not. No, you're, you're spot on. Every predictive maintenance project for AI I've done, or machine learning I've done, there has been an FMEA yep. involved in, like a formal yep. FMEA, which in some cases was more resource consuming than, the, <laughs> than doing the AI to identify those failure modes, right? Because if you don't understand it, you think, hey, AI's covered me, I have this whole asset health, but you missed a bunch of failure modes, right? And I think I talked about this. There's no way AI can cover 100% of your failure modes, yep. right? There's certain things that just can't happen. <laughs> AI is not going to be able to predict them. There's no measurement possible to do it, right? Um, so you need to be aware of that. Mm -hmm. So what would you say is the most, like I always talk about, you know, applying machine learning, and I say 
look for something that you know you do on a daily basis that's repeatable that yep. has kind of a result. Now, how do you define like what's a good thing to apply AI on? Um, so, in terms of you know, there's there's really two thoughts on where it applies. AI is an assistant, right? As those those tasks, right? Yeah. And the other one is looking at it. Um, so repetitive tasks, right? And it, it might be, um, you know, getting information off sheets and stuff like that, right? That's a repetitive task that AI you can delegate down that a, to AI. Um, like the example I gave of Amy scheduling my meetings, yep. right? That's a great example. It's not going to change the world, but it's, it's delegating tasks for me. The other one is looking at. You know, if I if I had enough time in the day and looking at trends, would I be able to come up with these unique patterns and things like that, yep. right? And I think the I heard at a conference and it was uh, Will Guts from Emerson was talking about. He said the the average person can look and correlate between about four different trend lines, right? You start to add the fifth in there, you're like, eh, I yep. can't remember now. You add the sixth, right? And you look at you know correlation of data leading up to a failure, chances are it's not just four, it's a bunch of things that happen, right? <laughs> so we can't look at that. So when we've hit our, our limit of resource capacity and time, right, then AI is a good fit for that, right? And to pick a problem to solve, and I typically say, you know, if you were to put your best operator, reliability engineer, or, or this engineer looking at data and using their senses, would they be able to detect the problem you're trying to solve? And the answer is yes, then AI is a great um, solution for that. Yeah. Perfect. Steve, do you have anything to say? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, first thing, Blair, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Um, why don't you tell people where they can find you, uh, if you want to have any plugs, are you speaking at any conferences coming up? I, I'm sure I am. I'm sure <laughs> I am. I just can't remember when. Uh, the best way to reach out to me is on LinkedIn. It's Blair Fraser. 